So change. Things either change for the better or for the worse. And you know the story of the Zen monk who was in Times Square in New York and he wanted to buy a hot dog and he uh, asked for a hot dog and the man said to him, um, what would you like? Hornet. So the monk replied with a smile, make me one with everything. <laughs> so the uh, man made the hot dog with ketchup and onions and all these other nice things. And he gave it to the monk, and the monk gave him a $20 bill. And the man didn't give him anything back. So the monk said, what about my change? And the man said, the change is all within. <laughs> so, what else have we got to say about change? I've changed my mind a few times on what I was going to say about change. So change is something we live with constantly and yet we are very ambivalent about change, aren't we? We would all like things to be better, either the world or our finances or our health or whatever. We would like things to be different, to change according to our schedule. On the other hand, Change is something that we can't prevent. And there are many times and ways in which we fantasize about f freezing the moment or freezing a particular part of our lives or pausing the button. But, of course, change happens whether we like it or not. And we're living uh, today in a time of uh, extraordinary change. You know, we celebrated the Queen's birthday in England. Uh, she's 90 years old now. It reminded me of a saying of George Bernard Shaw when he was asked once, where would you like to be at the end of the world? And he replied immediately, England. And they said, why England? And he said, because England is always 50 years behind the rest of the world. <laughs> but in the Queen's lifetime, I suppose the Queen has become this archetype now, a sort of living archetype of stability, of um, some symbol of uh, continuity. Uh, the longest reigning monarch in England, but probably the longest reigning head of state anywhere in the world. Or and so, despite the fact that she doesn't dabble in politics or express her personal opinion, 
she's become uh, a very universal symbol, even people who don't believe in the monarchy and don't like all the stuff around, around the throne, uh, respect the power of this symbol that she, she has grown into uh, over the years. And you think of her life extending, you know, from those pictures of her during the Blitz to modern Britain. And one gets a sense of how much just one little country on the edges of Europe, maybe soon to be even more on the edges of Europe, <laughs> uh, how much that has changed, you know, within one lifetime. And so we cling to symbols of continuity, symbols of stability, to signs that maybe something in this changing world doesn't change. And yet, of course, we know that everything does change. We live uh, in an era not only of rapid change, but of extremely uh, rapid change, uh, affected by the fact that we now think that change is inevitable and good, which is a new way of looking at change. Not very long ago, change was regarded with suspicion and uh, everything was done in politics and religion uh, and science and art even to discourage change. Change was seen as destabilizing and dangerous. Now we recognize change is inevitable and we welcome change at the same time as feeling overwhelmed by it. We have very contradictory emotional reactions to change. And we hardly have time today with our technology or with our politics uh, or any of our institutions really to regain our balance after we've been knocked off balance by a new wave of reform or new events or a new ways of changing our life through, uh, especially through technology. We don't have time to adjust before another wave hits us. And so I think never before in history, history is about change, but if change is slow and managed and discouraged, as it has been for most of human history, um, then history isn't quite such an overwhelming event. We see it actually as cyclical, things repeating themselves, like the day or the seasons or generations. So we don't think so much about change as about um, a, a different kind of revolution, not a revolution that changes everything, but a revolution of the same things in an eternal cycle. But that way of seeing the world and relating to events in our own personal lives or in the world around us has been shattered. I mean, there may be a few small pockets uh, of human society where the sense of cyclical uh, stabilizing 
change uh, events and very managed change survives, but they are few and far between. So never before have human beings needed more urgently to understand what change means. What is the nature of change? What changes and what remains? We're going to look a little at some uh, wisdom sources like the Bhagavad Gita and some of the Christian mystics uh, during the week as we reflect on this. In the Bhagavad Gita, for example, um, this discussion between Arjuna, the warrior, and Krishna, his friend, the God, manifestation of God, um, begins with a, uh, a, a debate or conversation about what dies. They're on a battlefield, so they know there's going to be a lot of death. So what dies? And the conclusion is, is that actually whatever, that whatever is born will die, but what is not born will not die. So our sense of the unborn or the, the timeless, which, can, which is not affected by change, our sensitivity to that is very different in a technological post-religious society from, uh, from that of the uh, axial age, 500 years before Christ, uh, when the Bhagavad Gita and many other great uh, leap, leaps forward uh, took place in human understanding and human consciousness. There, in other words, there was a sense that there was something that did not change, something at the heart of reality, and at the heart of the human being, that was beyond change because it was never born, it, was never, it is timeless, unaffected by the cycles of time. But our understanding of that has, is very different, if it exists at all, even if we understand what it might mean. So we need to understand more than ever what changes and, if anything, what doesn't change. But this understanding that we need to recover and, uh, and bring up to date is not so much an intellectual understanding, not something we're going to prove by scientific discovery or research, it's not so much intellectual as sapiential to do with wisdom. The kind of knowledge that we call wisdom which arises from experience. If you go in a troubled state to seek counsel or stability or help from a wise person, um, you are accessing their deep experience, their personal experience. And they are sharing that experience, the fruit of that experience with you, not so much by ideas, but by a personal uh, transmission or a personal sharing, a personal communication. So this wisdom understanding that we need arises from 
a direct experience of reality. The uh, research into the way the brain works has been beautifully summarized in the work of Ian McGilchrist uh, recently. And he has synthesized all the research that has been made possible by new ways of measuring the brain and its activities. So we now know pretty conclusively, it seems, that the left and the right hemispheres of the brain are working together all the time. Like Martha and Mary, the contemplative and the active uh, sisters in the story from the Gospel of Luke, the left and the right hemispheres of the brain live in the same house. And they are sisters. However, although they work together on everything, there is a world of difference between them. Because they work through different kinds of attention. The they are capable of uh, standing in for each other, at least the right hemisphere of the brain, it seems, can stand in for the left hemisphere of the brain if you have a stroke that affects the left hemisphere of your brain. And you can see at least two doctors here, so I hope you're not going to smile when I say this. Um, that that uh, the right hemisphere of the brain can compensate for what's been lost in the efficiency of the left hemisphere. So it's, it's not that they are... Uh, opposed to each other in any way. They complement and they can help each other out. But there is a significant difference in the way they see the world, or we see the world, through these different forms of attention. And the left hemisphere of the brain specializes in familiar knowledge. It's very good at filing things away, so that now we all know how to get from here to the restaurant. We don't just have to follow our appetite, we, we know the way. And tomorrow you'll know the way here. And uh, familiar knowledge gets stored, at least temporarily, in the left hemisphere of the brain, and we construct a model of reality from all of that useful information. And this model of reality is very useful because it helps us to uh, uh, picture things and to work out courses of action on the basis of our model. I saw this at work once where, uh, with a, a friend of mine, an Irish friend of mine, who's a water diviner. He has this gift for discovering where water is underground. And I went with him because a, a poor family that he knew were building a house and they wanted to save money by knowing where to put the well. So when we went into the field where the house was going to be built, he stopped at the entrance and he drew a little square uh, representing the field in a corner of the field, just with his stick. And then he put his divining instrument over this little square. And from that, he got the kind of vibration he needed to uh, know what part of the field to go to. 
So we went to the top left-hand corner of the field, and he started his exploration from there. Uh, so the model helped him, you know, to go in a certain direction, to start the work. But what was necessary was to know exactly where they should drill the well. Not just a model, not just an abstraction, but where actually to spend the money and dig the well. So he was walking around with his water divine thing, and I, being sceptical, I thought he was putting it on, <laughs> pretending. Uh, then I said, can I try? So he said yes. So I tried, and it's perfectly true. I felt it. So he said, well, it's only energy. It's just a fact. He said, the gift is interpreting it. So for me, it was nothing more than a shaky uh, instrument. But for him, it enabled him to see where the well should be sunk, what was the quality of the water flowing there, and uh, also, very important, how much water there was. Well, no point in digging the well if the water supply was going to run out in a month. So he was able to interpret all of that very successfully. So that seems to me a little illustration of the different ways in which we perceive things or pay attention. We needed that little square to save a lot of time, to give us an orientation, to know where to start. But then you had to get down to the nitty-gritty of examining the field. So the left hemisphere of the brain is very good at storing information and creating models of reality, but it is the right hemisphere of the brain that we regard in our culture as rather flaky, rather sort of non-productive, not that serious, like coming on a meditation retreat, or, I don't know, massage, or yoga, or incense, or things like that, or long uh, ceremonies in church, that these kind of things are really, you know, kind of right hemisphere, flaky, airy-fairy. But in fact, the research shows that the right hemisphere of the brain knows what's going on much better than the left hemisphere. It's in touch with immediate experience in the flow of reality. The left hemisphere takes this and should be humble enough to say, well, I'm only the secretary here. You know, I'm only putting all this inf information together so that it can be easily accessed when you need it. But what happens if the left hemisphere of the brain begins to think that it is the boss, that it knows everything? It can solve all problems by creating new models of reality. And, and diminishes the, the importance, the value of respect for this right hemisphere, which we could call the contemplative or the wisdom. Not wisdom in the sense it's abstract. 
wisdom in the sense that it is in the present moment. It knows exactly what is happening. It is there with it in the moment. So this is really, I mean, again, we can't polarize these two ways of knowing too extremely, but although they work together, they, at the same time, show very different kinds of attention, very different forms of knowledge. And the kind of knowledge that we're talking about, the understanding that we need to have about the world of change that we live in, and these tsunamis of change that are constantly hitting us, uh, that is what we mean by wisdom. And it's the fruit of contemplation. And contemplation is nothing more nor less than being in the present moment or being awake in the present moment. If we fail to recover this contemplative consciousness, then we are in a dangerous place. There's a very profound piece of Chinese wisdom. The Chinese are very pragmatic. It says, um, if you continue going in the direction in which you're going, you will arrive at the place you're going to. <laughs> so in other words, if you don't change direction, you're going to end up <laughs> over the precipice. Oh. <laughs> uh, Leo provides these sound effects during the talk. <laughs> so, uh, we need this contemplative consciousness not as an escape from the problems of the modern world, but as a necessary and urgent way of dealing with it, because otherwise we will be swept away by our own confusion, our own increasing self-contradictions, and the conflicts that arise both within ourselves and between ourselves and our neighbors uh, as a result of these contradictions. I mean, one good example of contradictions would be came up actually in the Meditatio seminar we had in Prague uh, recently on spirituality in a secular society, which was led by Charles Taylor and Thomas Haddock. And one of the uh, themes that kept returning in, their, in our conversations, um, and quite relevant to the Czech uh, political situation, was the uh, question of refugees. And certain Czech Republic, I think, and certain other countries in Europe have totally refused to take any of these of the Syrian refugees. And one of the reasons that they give is we have to preserve our Christian, Western Christian culture. So forget about you saw me homeless and gave me shelter. You saw me hungry and gave me food. I was naked and you clothed me. 
So forget about that. Christian Western culture, Christendom, uh, doesn't really have very much to do with Christ or the teaching of Christ in this particular uh, political issue. Very difficult, complex, sensitive issue, admittedly. But nevertheless, it calls for a point of view. It calls for clarity. It calls, in fact, to decide where, what side of the bread you're going to put the butter. It, it calls for a resolution of a contradiction which would only lead to further conflict if it's not resolved. So we need this wisdom really to deal with the, the conflicts within ourselves, within our societies, and within our own belief systems. Extreme reactions to the pressing crises of our time are all around us in our loss of balance and with the loss of a sense of a center, a center that can hold. In our community, we're thinking um, uh, deeply at the moment about uh, a center, having an international center, a home. And the reason for this is not that we have this uh, great, just this great love of, of bricks and mortar, or institutionalizing things. I think the purpose of the center would be actually to preserve or to, 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 to give a new lease of life after 25 years. We've been celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Uh, to give a new lease of life, another 25 years, to the monastery without walls that has, that has grown. And that uh, things change after 25 years. We see a lot of change, positive change. And yet, if we look ahead on that model with our left hemisphere of the brain, I think it seems to make sense, and we've been consulting about this with our national communities, and we will do at the end of this month when they all meet together. Some of you are national coordinators from your countries. Um, this, is, this is what we will be reflecting on. The need for, for centers of peace, centers of clarity, centers of um, service, places where uh, people can be sustained in their local work, encouraged, inspired. So, but we live in an age where there are very few centers that seem to be holding some of the most secure centers uh, in traditional society, education, or politics, or religion especially. These are all very um, much under pressure. In Sonnet 116, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare thought about this uh, center this experience of being centered. And he called it love. He thought about it in terms of love. Of course, he was 
writing all the sonnets about uh, the human experience of love. And he says, he, he, he speaks about love as this center of reality that, that holds during storms, during earthquakes, during all kinds of unexpected and uncontrollable change which happens in everything in life. Um, so he says, love is not love that alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. So here is a, here's an insight, not expressed in religious language, unless we unpack the meaning of what he means by love here. I think it's more than just romantic love. The sonnets uh, have their erotic moments, but they're not primarily about just romantic love. So he's speaking about love as this center of, of reality, this experience of something that cannot change, that holds firm through tempests and um, alteration. And Shakespeare was living in a pretty uh, changing time himself. But 400 years later, W.B. Yeats, Irish poet, was writing 1919, I think, uh, just after the First World War, and the apocalyptic uh, uh, experiences of that, uh, that uh, world-changing crisis. And in a poem called The Second Coming, uh, he expresses a rather more pessimistic view of the change that is overwhelming us than Shakespeare. Things have de degenerated and had, was spinning out of control in the way he saw things. I mean, remember he wrote this after, just one year after the end of the First World War. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, so in a spiral, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. So there's a disconnect between the, the, uh, the bird that is turning in its gyre, in its circle, and the falconer who is controlling it. The falcon can no longer hear the person who is uh, controlling it. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, 
and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, the poem is called The Second Coming, and it ends with this rather confusing image of a, of a beast lurching towards Bethlehem. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a poem, uh, it's not a simple uh, moralistic uh, interpretation of the second coming. It, uh, it's, it's looking really into the, into the heart of what we think of as civilization, or as Christian civilization, or Christendom and observing that it's not working, that it has not fulfilled its promise. Mere anarchy, think of the battlefields of the First World War, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So, I think this uh, reflection on, uh, on change is is one of the things that doesn't change. We keep returning to it, but we return to it in the light of our own contemporary experience, and we may want to reflect on what is happening in the world around us, in the political world and in the social world, and the great migration movements and uh, populations that's taking place at this time, which are unprecedented. One extreme reaction to such a tide of change is denial. Just too much to face, so turn the channel. Surf to another channel or another website. Uh, we deny we avoid, we downplay the importance of the events that are going on around us. It's too depressing. I met somebody the other day, I really, I was quite shocked actually, a very intelligent young businessman. And uh, European, and I was, started talking about the, uh, the UK referendum thought would be of interest. And uh, he said, I don't watch politics. I don't do politics. No interest. Well, presumably interest, but a decision to just not get into it at all. So that's one way of dealing with the <laughs> confusion and the contradictions and the fear that inevitably accompanies radical change, such as we're experiencing. So, you can immerse yourself in trivia, in constant entertainment, or in overwork, in self-exhaustion of one kind or another. Another reaction to this worrying uh, force of, of change around us is uh, defiance. 
rather than running away from it, you confront it and you're fueled by anger at what is, it seems to you, to be causing this change. You will blame certain groups, certain individuals, or certain nationalities, or certain groups of whatever they are, ethnic, religious, economic groups, uh, that seem to you to be causing the trouble. And fueled by that anger, of course, you uh, then attempt to take back control. That sound familiar? Or make us great again. Heard of that? <laughs> or return to a strong center of power, which is the philosophy of President Putin. So these are defiant reactions to the forces of change that at least, they would say, we're not out of, we, are, we are trying to take control again. We're at least we are not so powerless, or we, uh, and we will be able to turn the tide back. We'll be able to build a wall to prevent this, this group from invading our country, or we will, whatever. So at least, perhaps it has, maybe it has a little bit more um, guts to it than uh, just immersing yourself in TV or uh, entertainment. So we have to decide how we're going to relate to the change, the, the f powerful forces of change that are surrounding us. How, how do they change us, these forces of change? Sometimes the forces of change can surprise us by bringing out of us anger or racism or prejudice that we didn't really think we were capable of and we don't really believe in even. We don't like to feel it, so we cover it up, we give it other names, we try to rationalize it or justify it. But the forces of change around us can be so disturbing that they unlock our unconscious forces. And then we are changed uh, in ways that we dare not or choose not to admit. So change frightens us if we feel we cannot control it. But our powers of control are very limited by our mortality and by the fact that the world is a very complex, interconnected web of relationships and we are never quite sure what's going to happen next. And even by the fact that our feelings and our opinions and relationships can change. It's not only the world around us that is changing, there are some very deep changes that can take place in ourselves uh, without much warning. So, life is about change. 
We want security, predictability. We want to be able to be on top of things and control things for as long as we can. But if we eliminated change altogether, we and achieved total control of our destiny, we would all die of boredom and stagnation very quickly. We can change our pillow, get a better night's sleep. We can change our job, get more satisfaction. We can change our hairstyle, if you have one. You can change for better or for worse. Traffic lights change. The climate is changing. Some change can be ritualized, like the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. So we, we call it the changing of the guard, but actually, if it didn't happen, that's what would really disturb us, because it always happens at a certain time in a certain place. It's a ritual of change that gives us the feeling that we are in control of change. But at the same time, we are more and more conscious of how fragile these rituals are and of how illusory our capacity to control change is. We're deeply insecure about all of the institutions, the traditions of our, of our world. If we change just one thing, we, to some degree, change everything. There's a good and a bad aspect to that. If you have um, a bad habit that you want to change, like smoking, then uh, you may struggle with, with it, but when you do achieve a change, you actually rewire your, your synapses or your neural pathways so that you really do quit smoking, then there's a ripple effect in many aspects of your life, your, your perception, your health, and, uh, and your way of seeing yourself as a person who is capable of change, who's capable of being free from addiction, of breaking a bad pattern. So that awareness, that self-awareness that floods into you when you have changed something that you would like to change about yourself, has a very, uh, is, is, is very far-reaching. Far if you move the furniture around in your, in your home. Now, some people like to do that regularly, but often the people they live with don't like it. And uh, some people prefer, you know, to have the same... I mean, I went into a home recently, I hadn't been there for many years, and it was exactly the same as I remember it being 20 years ago. It was very reassuring. No? And the person who lived there was clearly very happy with the way things were. They, they found a very nice 
way of arranging their furniture. They didn't need to change it. They didn't want to change it. No. Other temperaments would get bored with it after a year and want to change it all around. But if you move the furniture around, it will change your mood, for better or for worse. It will make you feel more energized, more, more uh, open to new things. Or it will make you very irritable and very um, defensive. Well, when the children grow up and leave home, doesn't that change the family, the relationships? Everything is interdependent. One thing changes, everything changes. Because we live in this world, the real world, that the right hemisphere is able to perceive much better than the left hemisphere. We live in a world of intricate, beautiful interrelationships. That nothing is isolated. Everything touches in some way upon everything else. So, we need not only to change, uh, to control change, of course, That is, that is up to a point necessary. We, we need to control change. But more deeply and importantly, we need to change the way we understand change and to deal with change. And that, I think, is where we break through into the great mystical traditions. This is where the great contemplative wisdom is there waiting for us to ask for its help. Because it's not going to force itself upon us. It's not something you can get in a course, or something you can swallow, or something you can just learn as a subject. This is something we have to learn through experience. Something we have to live into and live through. And along with everything else we have to learn, we learn it best with other people. By working and walking together with others, learning from them as they learn from us and as we learn together from the wisdom that is there, wanting to give itself to us. The wisdom that we need to know how to deal with the kind of change we have unleashed. The idea of impermanence, anitya in Sanskrit, um, is central, in fact, to all spiritual wisdom. It's one of the three key elements of the Buddhist understanding of the nature of existence. Impermanence, uh, the, what is inconstant, evanescent, or transient. Very similar, really, to the Christian or the biblical idea of creation, of mortality. Everything is moving uh, constantly through its lifespan uh, back to its origin, back to its source changing as it, as it goes. 
fulfilling God's will in mysterious ways as it, as it goes. So the world is impermanent. It's not just a Buddhist idea, it's at the heart of all spiritual wisdom. The other two central elements of this contemplative wisdom is, again in Sanskrit, ancient language, dukkha, or suffering. Sometimes uh, translated not just as suffering or pain, but as what is unsatisfactory. And that's actually, I think, a more interesting word, because it means you get what you want, you fulfill your ambition, you fulfill your desire, but it still doesn't solve the problem. There's still something lacking, still something unsatisfactory about your life or what you've got. So this is inherent in the nature of existence. We will never be satisfied by what we find, uh, at least at this level of existence. My heart is, was restless till it found rest in you, St. Augustine said. This restlessness is dukkha, this insatiable longing for something else, something more. And the third element of existence that constitutes our experience of change is um, in uh, Sanskrit, it's anatta, and uh, it's the, 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 the lack of a permanent self or of a concrete self. This is very worrying to certain Christians who think this Buddhism is all about um, nothingness and cling to this idea that we have this uh, relationship with God that is one that we understand. That we understand it because I know who I am. I've got lots of proof that I am who I am. And uh, also I know who God is because it's been revealed to me. And uh, the revelation is, is correct, it's absolute. It's written here. So uh, some Christians uh, really panic at this idea of the no-self. But actually, the whole of the Gospel is about this transcendence of the self, as we know it. We see it not only in the life and death of Jesus, who surrendered himself, sacrificed himself, but we see it in his teaching. No one can follow me unless they leave self behind and all their possessions. And by possessions, it doesn't just mean the suitcase that you arrived at Montreal Loretto with yesterday, but uh, everything. All your thoughts, all your opinions, all of the ways in which we try, necessarily, to maintain some centeredness and some stability uh, 
in a world of change, even a mental world of change. We're only, you know, three or four degrees of body temperature away from being hit completely psychotic. That's the right word. You know, just we're we're very we're very uh, <laughs> we're very fragile, even mentally. You know, when we're when our memory fails us, or when um, we confuse things. So, the change is constant, continuous, and yet, this is the question, is there this ever-fixed mark that Shakespeare called love? Is this where we find the center of reality, which allows us then to make sense of change, to accept it, to deal with it, uh, maybe to endure it, uh, but to know how to deal with it. And so this, this week we'll, um, unless I change my mind, we will uh, <laughs> try to see how, how Christ, our faith, in Christ, which means not just our belief in him, but our relationship with him. How our relationship with Christ helps us to understand change. In what way is he, for us, this ever-fixed mark, this center of reality, this way of love, this door to love, which helps us to understand and accept change, to remain centered when the center cannot hold, to deal with fear and grief, which are always created by change. We're frightened what's going to happen, we grieve at what has changed or what we've lost, and awaken in that experience of change through that dying, which is another word for it really, this continuous dying, uh, to awaken within that to a reality that comprehends change, that understands it. Not just understands it, but includes it. Is there something which can contain change? Not stop it necessarily, but contain it that can embrace it and make sense of it, and yet itself does not change. Although our relationship to it may change as we change. And this is why the Christian wisdom calls this reality love. It's relational. Not an abstract idea or solution to a complex problem, which we can wrestle with for a few minutes before we decide to uh, deny it or evade it. So it isn't, it isn't that kind of solution to a problem. It's about understanding and experiencing the relationship that we have to this center of reality. We call this wisdom 
love. And we call the process of change that allows us to love, to enter love, to be related to love, we call this process conversion or metanoia. So there is a kind of change then that we are, in a sense, in control of. Or there is a kind of change that we willingly choose and that we commit ourselves to in a continuous and faithful way. That's conversion. The other kinds of change that we're terrified of, or the change is, is the sort of change that we don't know when it's going to hit us, we don't know what damage it's going to do, we don't know how long it will last, we don't know how to protect ourselves from it. But there is another kind of change. This is the change that the wisdom traditions all speak about, which enables us to embrace a transformation process that changes the way we look at change. This is what we call conversion, metanoia, change of mind. And that's what we look at also in relation to meditation. Because meditation in the Christian tradition is a way of love. That's what we're doing <coughs> when we meditate. We are making love. We are loving. We're learning to love. We're playing this game of love. So Shakespeare understood it at so many profound levels. When we meditate, the way we change the point, the focal point of our attention, is an act of love. Isn't that what we do when we fall in love with a person or a place? It attracts our attention, it holds our attention. We have a relationship to it. So meditation is this work of, of, of love because it is changing our attention. And it therefore changes us in a way that helps us to understand and deal with all the forces of change that otherwise terrify us and fill us with dread. So, I don't know whether we'll cover much of that ground, but we'll try anyway in going in that direction to um, try to see how meditation in Christian faith uh, does promise us, or does draw us towards, at least hope, a realistic hope, that there is a center that can hold, uh, and a center that holds us. <laughs>